So today we have Dr. Marianne Miller here with me, and she is an eating disorder specialist, and she is a therapist as well, and she's based out in San Diego. And when I was looking her up, one of her blog posts really stood out to me, and the one that she wrote on why we hide emotions in our eating habits was such a topic that stood out to me because I see it in so many patients, so I wanted to bring her on today. So Dr. Miller, why don't you introduce yourself, where you're from, and how did you get to doing the work that you do today? Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Elise. It's such an honor. And I, wow, so I'm originally from Denver, and then I went to grad school in Texas, and then I've been in San Diego since 2006, and absolutely love it here, so I'm not leaving. (laughs) So how I got into eating disorders, there's really two paths that converged for me, and the first path is that I had a part-time private practice working with people with chronic pain. And I was a professor at the time. And so I worked with people with chronic pain. I ran a chronic pain support group. And I found that a lot of them had disordered eating behaviors. And so at my university, they were offering a class, a graduate class on eating disorders in the summer. And I sat in on it and read all the textbooks And I said, wow, this is so fascinating. I just want to do a deep dive. And so I kept reading more and got extra training and said, this is actually what I want to treat. I want this to be my main gig. And so, um, so I got a ton of training. The University of California at San Diego has one of the top eating disorder treatment programs and research centers in really the world. And so I'm so lucky to be living here and they offer uh, trainings for practitioners who live in the area. And so I did that for three years. I worked with someone who had been working with eating disorders for like a decade and I got supervision from her for a year. And, you know, I just got all this specialized training and, and, I just soaked everything up and really went full force into the eating disorder world to the point at which I said, you know, I'm kind of tired of academia. I love working with clients and helping them recover. So that's how I decided to leave the university five years ago. And here I am. The other path is that I'm recovered myself is that I'm recovered from an eating disorder and that actually kept me away from working with eating disorders for many years because I've been a therapist for nearly 26 years. And I was like, no, that like hits too close to home, whatever. And it wasn't until I kind of came through through the back door with the chronic pain and I really got into it and said, I think I really like this. And I was talking to my their eating disorder therapist at the time. And I said, I'm just worried because, you know, I'm by then I was, I would say like 90% recovered from the eating disorder. And I said, I just, I don't know. Cause I, I, it's, I'm, I know I'm not fully recovered. I've got all this great recovery. I don't know how I can help people. And she just looked at me straight in the face and said, Marianne, you've lived it. And I was like, Oh, Oh, that can actually help people. And I 
it, it's kind of weird and it does. And even though my clients have so many different presentations of eating disorders compared to me, and I know even if they have similar to me, if like their stories is not exactly the same, I can completely relate to a lot of the fears they have, a lot of the struggles they have, a lot of the like mind games and, you know, ruminations and obsessive thinking. So like I, I, on a like primal, like pain level, I totally get it. And then on the flip side, I totally get how amazing it is to be recovered and how much it affects your life in a positive way. So, so and because now I'm 100% recovered and have been for many years, I can convey that to other people. Be like, it's possible, I promise. I've lived it and I've seen so many clients get there and you can get there too. So, so that's my story and it's my joy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I think, you know, in the past having conversations with other providers, even dietitians in this space who don't specialize in disordered eating or eating disorders, and have never had their own history. Sometimes I'll be in conversation with my colleagues and they'll say, you know, is this an eating disorder? Is this disordered eating patterns? And they just don't really understand the fine line between obsessive tendencies versus someone that just doesn't know what they're doing and are fumbling. And so having that firsthand experience really does solidify that connection with the patient. So I totally get that. And you mentioned pain too, your work in the pain sector. The thing that I always think think about is when it comes to emotions, pain being one of them, or maybe it's not, you can let me know. There's so many uncomfortable emotions that surface that I just don't think many of us know what to do with all of those uncomfortable things. And then we go to food. So how do you see all of that play out these uncomfortable emotions or pain in your patients? Well, pain is a physical sensation that can trigger a lot of uncomfortable emotions emotions and vice versa. Uncomfortable emotions can trigger pain. So it's kind of a chicken and the egg thing. And it's all wrapped up together. And so learning how to manage your emotions can actually help you learn how to manage your pain better. And so and then of course, it helps with eating disorders, because when you learn how to manage your emotions, you you're able to build this sense of agency that like I can handle these situations because I think when a lot of people turn to food, they think, oh, well, I can't handle it or I can't handle this really big emotion unless I have this, this behavior or this food to help me feel better. But the reality is that you can build up skills to help you manage these emotions and, and get to the point where like for me, and it's been this way for many years, that when something distressing happens, I do not think about food. The first, the, that, that does not come into my mind. I'm like, okay, what friends can I connect? How can I get hugged? How can I connect with my husband? How can I, you know, do I need to take a nap? Do I need to journal about it? Like, I don't, it's just not even on my radar. Mm-hmm. And, and so I just, again, I want to convey to the listeners that, you know, if, food or stress eating, emotional eating, binge eating, binge purging, restricting, you know, you name it, whatever behavior, disordered eating or eating disorder behavior you're engaging in, it's really like, 
it, it, I know it feels like you just have like a one track mind and it's just one pathway, but because of neuroplasticity, which is that our, our brains can change. And even when you're older, that's, you can create multiple pathways and kind of push the, the eating behavior pathway so far to the side that it just kind of falls out of I think in the past, whenever I had distressing moments that came up for me, for me, it was usually triggered from loneliness. I think growing up as an only child, living alone in college, I think that was a lot of my distress. For a long time, I I went to food because I really didn't know what to do. But then I think as I got older, I started to realize I need to boost my own mood. It can't just be one thing. And so for me these days, it's going on a walk with my dog. So having a dog was really game changing. For you, has it always been like that where you had all of these healthy pathways? That is a great question. Love that you walk with your dog. Connecting with pets is a huge way to get that unconditional love. I mean, you know, even with cats, they say, oh, well, cats, cats don't give you that unconditional love. Like I see clients who have their cats with them in their session and the cat's giving them a lot of love and comfort, even if it's just laying on their lap. So pets can do it. So I would say early on when I started getting therapy, when I was training to be a therapist, like the first couple of years, I got just like a general therapy. And what I learned was that it was okay to to ask for help and ask for support because I had grown up in a family system where it wasn't okay. Because if you asked for help, asked for support, expressed these big emotions, you're immediately shut down, invalidated, dismissed. And so I kept all those emotions so like trapped inside and locked in a little box. And, and so I began opening myself up and talking about the emotions, even before I got the eating disorder specific treatment. And I think that helped like lay some of the groundwork for these new pathways. And then, you know, journaling has always been a thing for me since I was in elementary school, but I don't think I ever used it in place of going to food for comfort until I started getting specific eating disorder treatment, which was after, after I got my PhD. So yeah, so what happened with me is that part of my eating disorder for many years was over exercising. Mm -hmm. But it got to the point at which I was doing it so much, I ended up very badly injuring my back, and I couldn't exercise anymore. Mm -hmm. And I, I ended up having a couple of surgeries and developing chronic pain. Hence, that's how I got into treating chronic pain. And that's when the eating disorder behaviors really stepped up because I couldn't overexercise anymore. Mm-hmm. And so, so with that, I really focused on getting the right help, which was finding the eating disorder that I needed, which I didn't do until I moved to San Diego. And then slowly building a support group a network through already existing friends, friends that were in, I, I joined a eating disorder support group that I went to for, I can't remember, two to three years. And that was really helpful. And then I was able to, through the support group, 
that really helped me build a lot of different skills that I could do where I learned to reach out to friends first. And then that became the normal thing. And that's what I do now. So it takes repetition. It can take a while, especially if you've had the eating disorder for a while. You know, it was uh, over two decades before I got like the right treatment. You know, I had tried getting good treatment in the past, but honestly, it just didn't exist, I think, because it was in the early 90s when I tried to get help. And people were still were trying to figure out what it looked like. And I didn't present with the like typical anorexia, bulimia. I wasn't under those categories. So it was a long road. And thankfully, things have changed so much. And there's just so much more education and knowledge. I think social media has been help, helpful, harmful in some ways, and helpful in others. But so uh, it, it was a process. Uh, to go back to your original question, it took a while for me to develop those new coping skills. Yeah. What a full circle story. It reminds me of what you said in the beginning of growing up and your needs weren't really met, at least emotionally, nor nor was it maybe even understood or addressed. And it makes me think of babies when we are first babies and we're crying for milk. And if our mother is really attuned to that need, then we trust our own hunger signals too. Of Like, oh, if I cry and I get milk, that's great. There's alignment versus the babies who are left alone. They're not attended to, and they're just crying for a long time, not getting milk. They start to not trust their own signals and they start to dismiss their own hunger signals. And I I wonder if that kind of bled into your emotion regulation too, not, not being addressed and you not addressing your own emotional needs. Oh, for sure. I I would say I grew up with a sense of food scarcity. Now, I want to say that with a really huge caveat that it wasn't because of financial need. And that's a whole different trauma when there's food scarcity because of financial struggles. And so I do not at all want to say that my experience is the same as that. I'm I'm saying food scarcity in that my family was a very diet culture family. Mm-hmm. And so they were very restrictive in terms of what was allowed in the house. I mean, very restrictive, except for the occasional kind of free for all where my dad would go out and get a bunch of stuff and then bring it home, like, you know, quote, junk food. And, and then it was gone and like, 15 minutes, you know, because the family would just like devour it like a pack of vultures. (laughs) So what, so that sense of like, I'm not, I can't trust myself around foods like cookies and candy and chips and, you know, pizza or whatever was so much that message was sent to me very, very young. And then I full heartedly believed it and I wanted to do quote the right thing because I have this perfectionistic trait. And so, and I wanted to please my parents and all the people that were telling me, you know, go on diets or you look better when you're on diets. And so that's how I fell into the diet trap when I was in elementary school. 
and it was easy to a degree because all the foods we had at home were just so limiting. It's just when I would go over to my friend's house and they would always have this candy and chips, I would be like, oh my gosh, you know, and then I would feel like I would lose control. And, but it was just because of that scarcity or restriction, perhaps that's a better word, that was existence in my household. And it was just, it's just really sad. You know, I, I know that my parents loved me and love me. And they just were so caught up in diet culture that, that it really screwed up my relationship with food. And I already had the genetic predisposition to develop an eating disorder because you can see it like in like my ancestors, I mean, grandparents and, you know, extended family. And so that really flipped the switch along with a couple of others to make me develop the eating disorder. Probably it appeared like when I was eight, I would say. Mm. And so, yeah, it's really sad just to like to grow in the sense of self deprivation or not deprivation. uh, Sorry, I wasn't, I was kind of depriving myself, but it was really coming from the family system. And that's just Mm. sad. You know, I deserved better. Anyone in that situation deserves better. Mm-hmm. I think yeah, as an adult, when you can recognize that, it's a beautiful and sad thing. But I think uh, until this point of, I guess, introspection, people don't realize that they deserved better. They can live through their entire lives thinking, oh, well, that's just the way it is. And, you know, patients of mine who who never had their needs met, whether it was with their parents or themselves, because that self-deprivation cycle continues, it's a it's a really, really beautiful moment when they realize, oh, I can I can address my own needs. Like I can say yes to this thing that I want, whether it's food or something else. But I think a lot of my patients, their motivation is I don't want to pass this on to my kids. This is the generation that it stops. And so yeah. That thank you for sharing. What a you know childhood. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. And you know, I my heart goes out to your patients and and the courage that they are showing as they are moving forward into as they're moving forward into treatment and to getting help that they're able to say, yeah, I want to do not pass this on to my kids because I know what it's like. And sometimes that's what it takes. It takes having a kid and going, wow, I do not want to do this to my kid. I do not want them to have to live with the pain and suffering that I did because having an eating disorder is, is so hard and it's just a really hard way to live. Mm-hmm. And I, I get a lot of my clients in, you know, midlife and older and who've had the eating disorders for 50, 60 years. I mean, half a century. And it's just a really hard way to live. And they they think, okay, well, this is just my life. But even if it's like 20 years or 30 years, I mean, that's still plenty. And then when they realize that there is something on the other side of the fence, you know, that, that life can be better and that they can be free of this, it, it is so, it is such a powerful thing. I'm like tearing up thinking about how powerful it is. Mm-hmm. 
And, and I just feel so called to help people get to this point because when it happens, it's just like magic Mm -hmm. and it's beautiful and it's an honor to be in that space with people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel the same. I think whenever I light up, it's when someone is having a moment of, you know, I, I feel like I don't have to think about food anymore. Like this is no longer something I obsess over. For you, you mentioned you had gone through years of treatments and maybe different modalities. At what point did it feel like it finally clicked that you were like, okay, this is this is the right path. This is the right treatment that I'm in right now. That's a great question because I didn't realize I had an eating disorder until I think it was my sophomore year in undergrad college and we had a guest speaker and just that was visiting the campus that had written a book on eating disorders and this was like in 1992 or three in 93 I think and when they the guest speaker came like people were not talking about eating disorders very much back then and when we I I went and listened to her I thought oh my gosh this sounds like me, could it be that I had an eating disorder? And so I went and therapy from the campus counseling center, and they had no idea. <laughs> I mean, they had no idea how to treat eating disorders. It was really sad. And and then I had, because it, the college was in a small town, I had to draw, drive to a bigger city to go to a support group. And I didn't have a car. So I had friends drive me who were friends who were amazing and showed me so much love. And so when I I ended up transferring universities and coming back home to Denver so that I could get the right eating disorder therapy, and yet that person still didn't really know what she was doing, like looking back. And I think it's just the training was not available back then. You know, it just, people just didn't know. So, so fast forward to 2006, 2007, you know, I thought I had quote, solved my eating disorder issue by exercising. I didn't know that over-exercising was even an eating disorder behavior. I had no idea. Like, no, I was, people were like, oh, now go exercise. Like therapists were telling me that. So, I mean, it was really just the, it was the era and it was the fault of, the mental health system that wasn't educated and you know things are so much better now and yet there are still therapists who unfortunately give unhelpful advice and then the clients end up in my office because therapists have told them oh it's just anxiety or oh everyone struggles with this I'm like no this is like a clinical brain disorder (laughs) and but people don't know because therapists I mean, I used to teach people how to be therapists when I was the professor and eating disorder training just was non-existent. I had to fight to try to get it included in the curriculum. And so it wasn't until, you know, I moved to San Diego and I was able to find someone who really, I mean, who had, I think, 20 years of experience working for an eating disorder treatment center, having a private practice, doing education outreach. Like she was one of the top experts in San Diego County at the time. Mm -hmm. And so 
I'm just so blessed that I found out about her and then I ended up getting help from her. And then I vividly remember my first meeting with her. I was just such a ball of shame and fear because I was afraid of being judged and how she was toward me and how normalizing and non-judgmental. It's just like something me that had something in me that was so clenched and tight and self-protective started loosening. And, and I was like, okay, I, I can be safe with this woman and I can trust her and I can be vulnerable with her because she really gets what I'm feeling in ways that I don't even know how she gets it, but she gets it. And so it became a very powerful model for me as I began my eating disorder practice many, many years later of being able to say, I want to be that safe person for someone else and I want the people to come in and say oh yeah Dr. Miller really gets it like she really gets it and she knows all this stuff and she's she's going to be here for me I know that she has my back you know she's not going to be judgmental mm-hmm. you know because that's what was shown to me and that's what I deserved and that's what everyone deserves and they they deserve to have someone who is knows about the research and knows about, you know, all these different types of eating disorder treatment, because there's a lot of different modalities out there. And so finding something that fits you best, I think is, is important. But I, I, I think for me, the relationship you have with someone, a therapeutic relationship is key, you know, finding someone who you can trust, finding someone with whom you can be vulnerable, and then finding someone who really knows about the eating disorder research, eating disorder, you know, treatment, and it has had a lot of success treating people. And when you have those three things, it, you know, beautiful things can happen and you can get recovered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's one of those things where I think the biggest value of having a therapist or any therapeutic support on, on board is the space that they hold, but also you're right. They don't, you know, a really good therapist or a really good dietitian is not trying to change you or judge you or do any of that. And the quote that I always go back to is acceptance or acceptance sets you free and judgment keeps you bound. And mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah. Someone told me that one day and I wrote that down and it has not escaped my brain. It's so powerful. And I think that's the space we hold for our patients where we're just trying to accept them and where they came from and how they got here. And we're trying to kind of hold that same space for them to get out of this. Right. So yeah, I think we both have are very, very passionate about this space. I know. know? I love that. Mm Mm-hmm. And when I think about the work of a dietitian versus a wor- the work of a therapist, sometimes I think even, you know, there's a gray area, I think that we both hold for a patient's. And I wanted to get your take on this. And I think this might also clear it up for someone listening as well. Whenever I approach my work, I come at it from understanding someone's story with food and their body. And from there, I'm trying to help them find more regularity and consistency and understanding of their hunger and fullness patterns. I'm always trying to get someone to understand those internal signals first. And then from there, as we're talking about being more aware of internal physical signals, 
also being able to recognize some of the discrepancies in why they feel that way about their bodies and untangling some of that. And finally, emotion regulation a little bit of like, what do you really need outside of food and trying to match that better? The moments that I think, okay, this work is beyond me is when they continue to be stuck in a self-sabotage rut or these emotions keep surfacing that just the logic of knowing it doesn't work anymore. So I think that's when I refer to therapists. In your opinion, where do you come in as I've talked about where I where I go with my patients? So, so my area of competence, my scope of practice is comes to people's emotional, psychological and relational health. And so that's what I focus on, that's what my training is in. Now, I have had some training in nutrition and but I, I focus less on what people are eating and more about how, you know, and really circle back to the mechanical eating piece. And having a dietitian on board speeds up the recovery process exponentially. Now, I have some clients who don't want to see dietitians and some of them are tend to be more of the binge eating clients because they've experienced They've had not so great experience with diet programs. And so when they hear dietitians, nutritionists, or whatever, they think that they're going to be similarly. And I try to provide a ton of education around that and say, like, I would never refer you to people like that, you know, I, and so, and then when it comes to like anorexia, bulimia, I say, we have to have a dietitian on board because it's a safety issue. You know, we need to have someone who's, you know, has, has the nutrition, nutrition expertise and knows the nutrition science and knows the physiological components. And then if there's, I think minors, I always send them to dietitians as well, Mm -hmm. because it's not just educating the, the patient, but it's also educating the parents on food and, and the dietitian, because like you, you have so much better knowledge and expertise on how to explain the science of nutrition than I I do. Like parents love that. And so that's very, very helpful for parents to be like, oh, okay, that makes sense. You know, I can just say like mechanical eating, you know, but so for me, it's, it's less about the what and more about the how mm-hmm. and, and then the psychological and relational emotional components that's really where i focus mm-hmm. so totally i love that you said that cuz i i say that all the time that same quote like my first job is to to help you with the how of eating cuz i don't care what you're eating mm-hmm. it's so it's so funny cuz in the initial stages it's about unlearning a lot of the rules and the the things that people already know about food And a lot of it is, okay, how can we actually tap into what you want to eat and how you want food to make you feel? And for most people, it's like, I just want it to make me feel energized. I want to be full and satisfied. I want to not feel sluggish and heavy and weighed down and need a nap. You know, these are very basic things that I think is just about unlearning diet culture for the first, you know, X amount of time. And in the final, I always tell my patients, it's only in the final 10% of our work together that I'm ever going to tell you 
how to piece together a balanced meal because you know, like we all know, right? It's not about that. But I care about what energizes you, what tastes good to you, what you want, and also honoring your physical signals too of hunger and fullness. It's overlapping that and also being really intentional about the situations that make you happy. You know, when your best friend bakes you a cake on your birthday from scratch, a a few bites of that is always going to be worth it versus having a slice of cake every night to get you through the winter blues for months on end. That's not great, right? So I think it's a lot of things together. And I think the synergy between a therapist and a dietitian is really Mm -hmm. special. And patients always feel more supported when they have that synergy. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I'm talking to dietitians every single day. So the amount of collaboration that goes into the work I do is, is essential for people to get treated in the most effective and efficient way, you know, because people want therapy to work. I mean, they, they call us to, when they're ready to heal. And I want to help them heal as quickly as possible. I don't want them to have to wait. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to, I'm going to provide those, you know, options and, and tell them like, this is about education, but it's also about hearing messages about diet culture and how unhelpful it is from multiple people, Mm -hmm. you know, and the more people you hear, the more it can kind of sink into your brain because diet culture one of my dietitian's friends says this, it's like, you know, it, like if like we were all fish swimming in the ocean, diet culture is the ocean, is the water. People don't realize like that we're swimming in it because it's just there until you're like, hey, dude, this is water. <laughs> we're swimming in it. There's other options <laughs> or like there's, <laughs> there's, you know, it's, the, it's not all water. The world is not all water. And and it's like well, after people see it, they can't unsee it. And then, and and the more other people can share with them, you can think differently about this. You know, you can choose to a different path. Mm-hmm. And when, if they're hearing this from dietitians and therapists and getting the support they need, that really help create new neural pathways for them. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a powerful, beautiful thing. And I love how you call it synergy in between therapists and dietitians, because it really does feel like that, you know, and that's why it's important for me that the, the, the dietitian is an eating disorder dietitian, that they specialize in eating disorders. That's, it's not like one of the 15 things that they do, you know, that it's, it's really their specialty because they get, and they've gotten the specialized training and it's really, it's really vital because people, people deserve, you know, it goes back to what I said earlier, people really deserve to get the right treatments. And it's not until you get the right treatment that you're going to, from a qualified professional and a qualified team, like a dietitian, a therapist, and sometimes a medical professional that you're going to get healed. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I kind of love that analogy with the ocean. And I think, yeah, some fish aren't meant to be in the ocean. Some fish are meant to be in a river or a stream or a Mm. lake. Right. I love that. Yeah. You don't have to be in the ocean. You can be out there in the Nile River. Who knows? <laughs> Dude. Yeah. Or a sick, <laughs> a sick looking tank. <laughs> yeah. So we don't have we don't have to be in the same ocean. But when it comes to your work, you know, who would be the person that would be right for your practice? Or who is that person that you just love working with and is a right fit for you? 
Oh, I love that question. So I have my psychotherapy practice and I work with many different types of eating disorders. I would say that people who struggle with binge eating and negative body image, that's number, that's probably the number one and what I'm known for in San Diego County. And then I'm also known for ARFID, Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder in teens and adults. So that's kind of like a subspecialty, if you would say. And then last year, I decided to go into the coaching world so I could offer help to people outside of the state of California where I'm licensed as a therapist. And with that, I work with people who struggle with binge eating, stress eating, emotional eating, negative body image too. So, so primarily in the binge eating, stress eating, emotional eating sphere. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think that's a big one. And yeah, the, the goal big is <laughs> big, 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 especially in the world that we're living in today. For sure. And what my last question is, what do you hope every patient takes away from their work with you? The first thing that pops in my mind is that they are loved. I know. I love Lizzo. Anyone who works with me, who follows me on social media, knows how much I adore Lizzo. And last year, she came out with her album special and in it, she she has this little like blurb where she just talks and say this album is about love. It's about love for yourself, love for others, you know, love, and it, it can be expressed in many different ways. And so for 2023, my word of the year is love. And it's love for myself, it's love for others, it's love for the world around us, because there's just there's so much hate out there. And and I so I'm choosing to lean into love. And so it's not like with my clients, I'm like, Oh, I love you, you know, because that would be clinically inappropriate for saying <laughs> but, but, like, <laughs> you know, but like, I can convey that care and compassion and love and it's love without judgment, you know, and, and for many of my clients, that's exactly what I need. I work with a lot of LGBTQIA plus clients and like they're especially needing of needing that and then people in fat bodies people in larger bodies they so need that love and that care and compassion and Mm non-judgment and I can convey that you know just by showing up and and being there for them and so I want them to feel loved and then you know I want them to go seeking out love in with other people in their lives who are not going to judge them, who are going to show up for them, who are, are instead of being dismissive and invalidating and minimizing them, their emotions, who are going to be able to accept their emotions fully, you know, that's what they deserve. And then they deserve to learn how to do that with themselves. So loved. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's a beautiful thing. We all deserve that. And thank you yes. so much for your time. Where can people find you, Dr. Miller, if they want to learn more about you? I'm very active on Instagram at Dr. Marianne Miller and my website, which is drmariannemiller.com. I have a Facebook group that's for people who struggle with binge eating, emotional eating, and stress eating body image stuff. And I provide a lot of unique contents and resources and I do a weekly live show just for that group. 
So if you are interested in it, you can M me on Facebook and I'm Marianne Miller PhD on Facebook and you can request that. And then the Facebook group is redefining relationships with food and body image. That's the Facebook group. So Mm-hmm. Love it. And I'll link all of that for you guys in the show notes. So thank you so much for your time, Dr. Miller, and I oh, will stay you. connected with you, hopefully. Oh, yes, definitely. This has been such a pleasure and a joy. Thanks, Elise. Mm-hmm. Of course. If you love this episode and are so ready to take action and become the most carefree version of yourself with food, I think it's time for you to slide into my DMs at Craving Food Freedom. I would love to get to know you and see what magic can unfold with private coaching, the two of us. Until then, I'll be rooting for you always on your journey towards food freedom.